0: So why is the resurrection such a big deal and such a reason for celebration? And why should we get so excited about an historical event that took place so long ago? Well, to understand it properly, you got to take a couple steps back. Back from the resurrection and look at the days leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we've got to start with one of the darkest moments in all of history. We have to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of Christ's arrest, where he prayed to his father as he looked toward the most shattering and terrifying event any human being has ever experienced. Not just his death, but the wrath of God poured out on him for us. You see, it was there in the garden of Gethsemane that Christ agonized and prayed three times. Three times. He, he'd sweat drops of blood and agonized in prayer for this cup. This cup to be taken away from him. And the cup he was talking about was not just his death, but the cup Of God's wrath. That he was going to drink and drain. For each one of us. When he hung on the cross in our place. Suffering not for his own sins. For he was perfect. But for our sins. It's the cup of God's wrath. That caused Christ to shudder the most. You see in the garden on his knees. Jesus was already entering into the gut-wrenching mental and spiritual agony of contemplating what it was going to mean to suffer in our place and to have the wrath of a holy God for our sins poured out on him. And so I want you to understand that the physical suffering and shame of Christ's death on the cross... Though filled with ignominy, wasn't the worst part of it by any means. No, the worst part of the crucifixion and death of Jesus was that God, in that moment as Christ hung on the cross, put our sins, all of them, on Him and turned His back on His Son for the very first time. and that's why Jesus cried out from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me you see the the, the death of Jesus was no accident this was the very purpose for which he'd come into this world not to just heal the sick feed the hungry right oppression but to take care of our biggest problem And to finish the mission of setting us free from our sins. And free from the fear of death. That haunts every human being from birth. I want you to listen to how the gospel writers describe those final moments of Christ as he hung on the cross. The gospel writers tell us. Now it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, it is finished. What difference does it make whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or not? And to answer that, I want us to dig a little more into what the gospel of Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible with you or a, a, a device that can get you to a Bible app, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at verses 36 to, 30, to 43. Luke 24, verse 36 to 43. And while you're finding that, I want to acknowledge that I am indebted to Pastor Tim Keller. Some of you may know that name. To Pastor Tim Keller for some of his insights and thoughts about these verses that really, really stirred me. That I've worked into this message today. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? And so they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. I think these verses in Luke 24 were written especially for the average American. But I'll push it out beyond that. The average human being alive today in our modern times. Because the average American or person today is very often comfortable with Easter. For the most part. Even the Easter message of Jesus and his resurrection to some degree. But when you look at the way the disciples responded to the resurrection of Jesus in these verses, the word comfortable would never be the best word choice, would it? I mean, look at the verses again. It says they were terrified, frightened, troubled, and then filled with joy and marveled. So how have we, how have we today fallen into such a comfortable middle ground with the Easter story? Well, I think it's because most people today have sentimentalized the Easter story and turned it into something inspiring whether or not it's true or not. Regardless of whether it's true, it's inspiring. See, in essence, people many times today are willing to say, oh, I love the Easter story. I love the Easter story. It's inspiring. It's an example of new beginning after disaster, hope after darkness, life after death. But in the same breath, they would be quick to add, now, of course, I don't actually believe in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just think the stories of Jesus morphed through the years and began to include physical Resurrection, and I certainly don't believe that, but I still love the Easter story. Listen to me, it's almost like Luke anticipated people wanting to do this very thing. And so he says, If you spiritualize the story, you might find a little comfort in it, but you will not have the truth. And you will not have the solution to your biggest problem or your greatest fear. No way. See, the whole point of the passage, folks, is that if you're simply comfortable with the inspiration of the Easter story, and you're not either terrified by it or filled with joy over it, then it's because you've either taken the Easter message and turned it into some kind of hallmark greeting card moment or you just have not thought carefully enough about the resurrection let me make it clear for you the message of easter according to the bible and what we as christians truly believe is that jesus really lived jesus really died Jesus really rose from the dead and Jesus is really coming back. That is what the Bible teaches and that is what we believe and that is what Christians are willing to give their lives for, by the way, as recently as in Africa. When asked, do you believe? Are you putting your trust in Christ? Are you a Christian? Do you follow Jesus? Not a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus. Yes, I do. And so if you understand the resurrection... (coughs) Excuse me, the way the disciples understood it, it really leaves only two options. You'll either be moved to absolute terror or absolute joy. But you won't just be comfortable with it. I want to show you two things that we can learn from these verses in Luke 24. Here's the first. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means Jesus is Lord. And that's the terrifying part. He's not a myth. He's not a a a legend. He's not an action figure hero. Don't put him over there with Captain America and all the rest. If Jesus rose from the dead, my friend, then Jesus is Lord. And the Apostle Paul understood this well. When he went into the city of Athens... And when he arrived in Athens, he went up onto Mars Hill or the Areopagus and he began to lecture and talk with the council of philosophers that regularly hung out there and met there. And here's what I think is interesting. If you read the account in Acts 17, you'll see that when he first began to hang out with them and talk, they were loving it. They were loving it because there was nothing they enjoyed more than hearing a new idea or learning about something new. And here Paul was bringing a new religion, a new person, a new... Oh, they were loving it. Because they loved to debate and listen to new ideas, even about God. Because they didn't deny the existence of God. They certainly allowed for the concept of God. In fact, they had many, many, many gods all over the city. So they were okay with the idea of God and seeking God because they thought, yeah, that's right, Paul. We're all searching for God and all the religions of the world tell us a little bit about this God. And each one of the religions of the world give us some clues as to how we can find him and find life and deal with some of our greatest struggles. So far, so good. But there is a definitive turning point in Acts chapter 17 where Luke tells us That Paul said to them in verse 30 and 31. These times of ignorance. God overlooked. But now. Commands all men. Everywhere. To repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all. By raising him from the dead. Oh my goodness, that broke up the party. All feelings of goodwill were shattered at that point. The laughter and the camaraderie of of sharing ideas together was done. Why? Because Paul was saying the search for God is over, He's here. It's time for a decision now. No more debating. No more philosophizing and trying to piece it all together. We don't have to guess anymore. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's time to repent. And that triggered the same kind of response that you get from people today. Because the philosophers on Mars Hill understood that the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant that Christianity was claiming about its founder something radically different than every other religion. By rising from the dead, Jesus was showing that he's not like the founder of any other religion. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the son of God. And he crushed our greatest fear, death. And solved our biggest problem. Our sin problem that separates us from a holy God. So never mind the philosophers on Mars Hill. Let's set that aside. What does this mean for you and me today? Well my friend it means the search is over. And the day of repentance is here because every other philosopher and every other religion was always pointing and saying, this is the way to life. But Jesus showed up and said, I am the life. Every other religion was always pointing and saying, This is the way. But Jesus shows up and says, I am the way. Every other religion was saying, here's a little bit of truth. And Jesus was saying, I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. To which all the other clues have been pointing all along. And so here's what the resurrection really means, folks. Stop searching and repent. That's why the resurrection should be such an outrage today. And not just some inspirational hallmark greeting card moment. Because the resurrection, if you understand it as you should, is an all out, in your face call to repent. And make a decision about Jesus Christ. It was never meant to be an inspirational ditty. It was never meant to be something that you settled in with comfortably like a cat purring in your lap. Listen. Jesus and the resurrection don't settle in with you and purr on your lap. They rock your world. And bring you face to face with a decision. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ, folks, should either terrify you or move you to rejoicing, but it should never serve as some kind of safe middle ground. But now let me say something to some of you that have been kind enough to not stand to your feet and say, Shut up! Let me say what some of you have probably been thinking. But Brad, that all sounds so inflexible, intolerant, absolute. Exclusive and even arrogant. Well, let me speak to that for a moment. I think it's a great irony today that the people who most hate pat answers and absolutes are the ones that I think live their lives with the most pat answer of all when they say, everybody's got their own religion. And everybody's searching. And so everybody's got part of the answer. But who knows who really has the truth? And that all sounds very humble and politically correct and could get me in all kinds of talk shows and they'd love me. But you know why that's a pat answer? Because as long as we're all continually searching... With no way to determine who's right, then I can still say I'm a spiritual seeker, but go on living any way I want. Because I'm seeking, but I actually don't ever want to find anything. Because if I actually found truth, it would bring me to a point of decision. And that new decision just might call me to change something about the way I'm living. and I don't want to change. I'm convinced that what a lot of people today pretend are intellectual objections to Christianity are actually no more than a a smokescreen and a moral means for preserving and protecting their right to live any way they want. I don't want there to be absolute truth. Because then I might actually have to change that that decision might impinge on some of my own desires and choices and I want to live any way that I want to live while I still claim to be a spiritual seeker. I just don't ever want to arrive. I'm on a journey continually. The resurrection shatters all that when Jesus says, I'm not the pointer to the truth. I am the truth. I'm not the pointer to life. I am the life. And I hold the keys of death and I have crushed it for you so, that the only way you will ever get past death is through me. And if that's what Jesus is saying, and it is, it means the search for truth is over and a day of decision is come. Set aside bonnets and baskets and chocolate and festivities for a moment. I want you to forevermore be gripped by this. Every Easter, It's on the calendar, at least in this country. Every Easter, every year is a reminder that the search for truth is over. And a day of decision has come. That's what the resurrection is about. And I'm convinced Dr. Luke knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote these verses the way he did in Luke 24. Because I want you to notice something else. I don't know if you picked up on it as we read it. But I want you to notice something. What's the whole thing about the fish in verse 42? Look at that again. Luke 24, 42. What does the fish have to do with anything and why does it get included in a resurrection passage? Hang with me. The only possible reason, my friend, for the kind of details that Luke gives us was that he wanted to drive home to us that Jesus literally and physically stood there, and people watched him eat a fish. I mean, he even tells us how it was cooked, right? Not fried, not breaded, broiled, broiled. Why would he say broiled? Because Luke never intended to give us an inspirational legend. He was reporting historical facts, And so he gives unnecessary details and lots of them. This is not how you write a legend. When you read this, you realize Luke is making a truth claim. Not telling a story to inspire. It's the same thing you'll notice all throughout Luke and the other gospel writers. In Luke chapter 2 and 3, you'll see Luke giving what seems like way too many details... About who was ruling and when they ruled and where they ruled. Don't turn there. But listen to how Luke writes in Luke chapter 3. He says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Oh my goodness, Luke, cut to the chase, buddy. Why is this all cluttered up with so many historical details? I'll tell you why. Luke was not writing a legend. And it's the same thing that you see the Apostle John and others doing as they write. Apostle John in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, says this. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Jesus was real. His life was real. His death was real. And his resurrection was real. And so Luke and John are both saying the same thing, friends. They're both saying, we know this is an outrageous claim. That he's risen from the dead. We know that we're living in a very pluralistic society. In which everybody says, hey, we've all got our own religion. We've all got our own truth. And we know that nobody else makes a claim like this but what can we do? We saw him, we heard him, we touched him, he's alive. They were witnesses. Do you see now why the resurrection should be so terrifying? It was never meant to be some inspirational fairy tale. It was meant to rock your world, one way or the other. either either go ahead and be terrified and outraged over the audacious claims of the resurrection or throw up your hands and dance for what God has done to solve your biggest problem. But don't dumb it down. Don't try to turn it into nothing more than an inspirational hallmark moment. Don't try to make friends with the Easter story and settle into a comfortable, non-existent, sleepy Middle ground. Jesus and the Bible writers just don't give you that option. Let me show you a second implication about the resurrection. Number two, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then that means you can have him in your life. Jesus didn't die and rise again and ascend to the Father. So that he could live in some kind of Peter Pan, Never Never Land, just floating around. He did this so that anyone who believes can have access to him wherever you are by faith. You can have a personal relationship with the living Jesus because he's no longer in the tomb and can live inside of you. And speaking of the tomb, let me point out something else that I think strongly indicates that the life, death, death resurrection of Jesus really happened. And it's this. Christians lost the tomb. If you say, so what? What's that matter? Well, then you need to understand that at the time that Jesus died, it was customary for for when sages and holy men and prophets died, that their followers would make their tomb a shrine, a place of veneration and holy pilgrimage. There were at least 50 tombs like that in the land of Palestine when Jesus died. And yet we know that just 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, basically nobody was sure where the tomb was. Now I know, if you go to Jerusalem, someone will be happy to say, take your money, and say for 20 bucks, I'll show you where the tomb of Jesus is. But they don't really know. Because the early Christians simply ignored the tomb of Jesus because he was not there anymore. Let me illustrate this for you with what would be one of the most painful things any of us can experience in this life, and some of you have experienced it. The death of one of your own children. When your child is alive and well and living in your home, you simply walk into their room and you see shoes and clothes and stuff everywhere and you might think, why don't they pick things up? But because they're alive, that room and their stuff doesn't mean that much to you. If anything, it's a source of aggravation and arguments, etc. But when a child dies, you don't look at that room the same way anymore. You say, oh, there's his shoes, there's her bed. There's his guitar. There's some crumpled receipts that were some of the last purchases they made. There's his marble collection from when he was younger. There's her doll collection still lined up on the shelf. And people keep it that way. They treasure it. Everything takes on significance. See, when you don't have someone, you venerate the place ...where they used to dwell. Their stuff and their room become a shrine... ...like Elvis' home in Memphis. Which, by the way, he's dead. Stop looking. So why didn't the early Christians go to the tomb... ...and turn it into a shrine... ...and a place of holy pilgrimage? One simple reason. Jesus was alive... ...and they had him as their own... ...in their own lives... They didn't need to camp outside the empty tomb lighting candles and singing songs like the followers of other dead leaders. They had Jesus in their life. And so can you. But you'll have to be willing to submit to the first point in this message. To bow and make him Lord. And that's the terrifying part. You're no longer in the driver's seat. You've got a new master. You're not autonomous. And you'll also have to see yourself as sinful and self-absorbed, desperately in need of a savior and salvation. Because Jesus came to die for sinners. Not people who already think they're doing pretty good and just need a booster shot. And you'll have, that means you'll have to get over your own self-righteousness, which very often can be the biggest sticking point that keeps people from coming to Christ for salvation. Oh, listen, because he lives, you can leave here changed today. But only if the resurrection is real. So what about you? Where are you on this? Are you trying to live in some fuzzy middle ground, comfortable with the Easter story, but it's nothing more than an inspirational Hallmark card moment? Or is he alive? And do you have him in your life? I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to think about this before you rush out of here today. And on to festivities or dinner with special people or however you're going to spend the day. And I want you to think about where you are. Not your spouse, not how your parents raised you, not what you've been told or taught, but real honest, just before you and God, what are you truly believing about the resurrection and Jesus Christ? Are you trying to live in the middle ground of just comfortable with the Easter story? And you're quick to say, I'm no atheist. I'm not hostile. I don't attack Christianity. I allow for it. My friend, Jesus and the gospel writers don't give you that option. The resurrection of Jesus should either terrify you or fill you with joy, but it was never meant to make you comfortable. Jesus is alive today and he calls you to make a decision to either follow him, and it'll cost you. But you're willing to pay the cost because you know it's real, he's alive. He did for you what no one else could do for you. Either follow him or reject him. But don't treat him like some inspirational myth. What are you gonna do today? You have a decision to make. And oh, how I hope you choose wisely, my friend. Because your eternal destiny is riding on this. Life and death, heaven and hell are riding on this. And I can appreciate that some of you might say, Brad, I need more time to think about this. This is such a big decision. Okay? I want to honor that unless what you actually mean is, I don't want to deal with this. I can put this off. I can deal with this later in my life. No, 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 no. Today. But if you genuinely say, I need to think about this more, and you intend to do that very thing, then I've put a couple of websites at the bottom of the sermon outline today that can help you investigate further the credibility and historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ it can also help you think further about what does it mean to be a Christian. Because Jesus lives, you can face tomorrow. Not because of what we hope might happen in Washington. Not because of what you hope might happen in your job. Or, or some mending that might happen in earthly relationships or finances or whatever. All of that comp- pales in comparison to what we've celebrated And to what's been offered to you today. That can't be taken away from you. Friends come. Friends go. Relationships mend. Relationships fall apart. Finances prosper. Finances take wings and flight. But Jesus is alive. And does not change. And when you come to him. And make him Lord. Not an inspirational legend or hero. But say yes Lord Jesus, risen and reigning, who already solved my biggest problem. If he already solved your biggest problem, he will help you in this life with the temporal problems. And you can have him in your life. Jesus is alive. And you can have him.